The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I am Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Reverend Dan Beckett. And together we discuss the ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your recovery journey. So today's show is meant to be an interactive discussion. So if you're listening live, you can call in with your comments and questions. The number is 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. And Facebook users, you can also message us during the show or anytime during the week from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Just click the Send Message button right below the banner, and your anonymity is always respected. So the title of today's show is Me, 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 <laughs> and I had to laugh, you know, because that's such a theme. All people, <laughs> you know, it really is, but all people deserve to be heard and to be valued, but addiction doesn't think so. Addic- addiction says, me first, and I'm more important. So one of our big tasks in recovery is to learn to live harmoniously in community and to take our rightful place as one of the bunch. So this week, we want to talk about moving from placing self above others to a life of joyful community using the spiritual principle of consideration. And we'll begin, as we always do, by sharing our own experiences of self-importance and then move into the solution, the spiritual principle of consideration. And after the break, we'll share exactly how we used consideration to become equal partners with others, a much better way to be. So, Lonnie, when you think about our our topic, me, 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 or that whole the me first principle, it seems, of uh, addiction, what does that bring to, what do you remember about that in the early days for you? Well, I, as, as long as I can remember, um, the thought comes that, but what about me? You know, that was, it didn't matter what was going on around me or, or what somebody was saying or doing. I was always concerned with, well, how is that going to affect me? And, you know, and early on, it's a survival skill, but later it got to be um, a barrier, a barrier to relationships because, um, you know, I always wanted to be first in line and I always wanted to be the, the top dog. I wanted to be called on first when I raised my hand, you know, all, and, and wondered what was wrong with me when that didn't happen. What comes to mind for me is that, that, that you know, we talk about this so much. It's almost, uh, it's almost, let's see, if I had any sense, I might be embarrassed. 
So what do I do? I, I get on this uh, format and I broadcast to the world what I won't. Okay, I'll use a better family-friendly language. How self-centered I have been, and oh, I don't know. Perhaps still can be. Not sure. But this is what I always have to remember: is that all this stuff, all all this self-centeredness, however we um, consider it, it's all fear-driven, right? And it's good for me to keep that in mind because. Uh, that reminds me, this is not a moral judgment. You know, anybody who's wired the way that we're wired, who had the experiences in life that we had, would be in the very same place. This is not a moral judgment, but it is something that we need to look at. It is something we want to recover from, do better than um, over time. But I always have to remember that this stuff is fear-driven. And so, uh, you know, in the times in my life when I look back with some embarrassment about how uh, self-centered, how me first I was, I have to cut myself a little bit of a break and say, well, you know what, that's totally understandable given uh, circumstances, whether it be, you know, biology or society or w whatever it is, um, is completely understandable. So here's one way that that shows up for me is of a, a fear of being lost, you know, of being lost in the shuffle or of not being heard. You know, it feels terrible to feel invisible in a situation. So what's the solution to that? Well, I'll, you know, if I adopt a me first view, I'll make sure that I'm heard and that I won't have to um, feel the pain of uh, being ignored or forgotten. You know, you make a really good point about the fear driving our behavior. Under every character defect that is expressed, defect is the language of the program, of course, you know, it, it is fear-driven underneath that. And my problem was that I was unconscious to that. I was unaware that I had so much fear to start with, and I was unconscious to, to the behavior that that triggered. And so it wasn't until I stepped on the toes of others and they retaliated that I started to, to get some level of understanding about uh, what what this behavior was that was unacceptable. You know, I, I tell people I, that the program for me started by working from the outside in. Oh, that's unacceptable. Okay, try not to do that. I altered my be behavior a long time before I was able to alter my thinking of, gee, but I, I need what I need and I want what I want and I'm first. You know, I love um, that word that you used, unconsciousness. You know, we, are, we were unaware of uh, the dynamic of the way that we were showing up. Um, and I think that that's true for every uh, person uh, suffering from any addiction anywhere. It seemed perfectly reasonable to us at the time, made total sense. Of course I would do this or act that way. That's the, you know, that's part of the madness, if you will, um, of addiction. Uh, something that comes to mind for me again, and, and this is, you know, file this under no sense of balance, right? We joke uh, many times, I heard it first from you, that balance is that middle point that we go flying past on our way from one extreme to the other. And so if I'm afraid about things not going my way, I can either leave, right? Or I can assert myself strongly, right? Because of course, there's no middle ground. There's no balance. I'm either going to run away or I'm going to fight. You know, I think we, uh, when we talk about that fight or flight response, um, under pressure, that there is a middle place to be, and that is to, you know, stay in it. We'll talk about that when we get to the solution. So if I'm not going to run and I'm not going to fight, uh, what does that leave me? 
Well, we'll leave that as an open question for a little later. <laughs> well, I know where that left me. It left me in a position of wanting to be in control. And so, you know, that was one of the ways that this showed up for me was that I uh, was bossy and over controlling and micromanaging and manipulating and all of those kind of things that would seemingly ensure that I would be taken care of. And uh, it didn't matter what setting I was in. I could be in a family setting. I could be in a work setting. Um, I would find a way, one way or another, to get what I perceived my needs to be met. Here's another way I think that this showed up. And in this I could, you know, we have a way of... Um, uh, I don't know, I think the right word is probably rationalizing, but candy coating, you know, explaining, uh, making it sound or seem okay. So uh, we'll call this altruism, right? Well, I'm I'm right, and I know that I'm right. And, and I just need to share it with those other people who obviously aren't right. And, and, and I'm doing a service to them. Let me tell, let me tell them uh, exactly how it is and, and what they're doing wrong, and then they can thank me later. <laughs> you can imagine how, how well that goes over, right? So it, it, it can show up in sneaky ways. And again, I can tie that back to a fear. Like, oh, you know, if I, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if, if things aren't going the way I think they should go or the way that I understand things to be. So I want to jump in and correct and teach and control and change so that I can feel comfortable. You know, is, is that altruism? I, I kind of don't think so. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of work um, being fear-driven and in this experience of self-centeredness uh, because the mind is active, at least mine was, all the time trying to figure out how, how to handle this, how to handle that. And one of the things that I did when I look back is I spent a lot of time planning, a, a lot of mental gyrations um, to make sure that things would either go my way, and if they didn't, I would play that that scenario out all the way to the end as well so that I could have a plan B. I could have some kind of a second and third level of plan of, okay, if that fails, what am I going to do? And I would call that manipulation. Yeah, and I hear the sa the need for safety in there. I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. what you do when you're taking a rocket to the moon, and you better make darn sure that if, if thing A doesn't work, that there's a backup, and if that doesn't work, there's a backup because of what's on the line. Now, I know in my life it's not like I'm taking a rocket ship to the moon, but I still have that kind of planning mind that you're uh, describing. In fact, I realized as I considered this how much urgency – is underneath these things, these these fears that drive us, because it, it really does almost feel like I need to assert or die. You know, again, that, that, that black and white way of thinking that it seems like life or death, and maybe, you know, in an ego sense, it is, it is a death. You know, that's something that I know that um, I have become familiar with, and I hear described by professionals, you know, therapists, psychologists, whatever, that, that if we feel like we're losing our sense of self, that feels like we're dying, and we will do almost anything to avoid uh, that. And that's not a physical death. That's a death of sense of self. And we will, as we say, hang on to something until it has claw marks in it. So there's so much urgency underneath it, because it does feel like, man, if, if I don't get myself in this situation, uh, I'm going to die. I, I need to compete or I'm going to be, I'm going to become invisible or get left behind. Well, and that, that really triggers for me a, a sense of panic, you know, almost a, a very high anxiety level. And I spent a lot of time in that high anxiety level, thus the need to moderate it with 
uh, mind-altering substances because uh, this would be called not being comfortable in my skin. You know, when things are not going the way I think they should or people aren't doing what I think they should do or, or there's an un, a situation coming up that is not something I have thought through, planned through, and figured out how to manipulate, then I have this sense of panic, you know, that, that the urgency that you speak of, uh, of, of, oh, my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, and it, and it was it, – I had panic attacks. I'll just put it that way. And and they would force me, that fear would force me into behaviors that I would never consider otherwise, like leaving out the back door when somebody came in the front door. Yeah, it's ironic that you use that phrase because I think that any kind of addiction will do exactly that. You know, we will do things, say, uh, under the influence of alcohol that we would never do otherwise. Or we would do things, you know, under the influence of whatever our addiction may be, whether it's a substance or a behavior. You know, if I have a, if I have a problem with gambling, I will, when that's got a hold of me, I will do things I would not nor never do when it didn't. Uh, have me under its influence. I know as I thought about this, realized that um, it's almost like to to let others be equal is the same as to get walked on or to otherwise get taken advantage of. And as I considered all this stuff earlier, I remembered, you know, this is all, these are all internal experiences. This is each of our realities inside ourselves. It may not match what an observer would see, but that doesn't really matter. You know, we're talking about our inner landscape and our inner experience. And so this kind of, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, that's going to happen. Um, I know that that is part of my inner makeup in the way that I'm wired. The good news about that is that means that I can do something about it, right? <laughs> And, you know, and that's one of the things that makes this recovery thing so hard is that we can become socialized. We can learn not to be rude and not to step on other people's toes and to modify our behavior in accordance with the norms of whatever group we're in or uh, work or society or family or what have you. But that does not necessarily change our internal experience. And that's where the work lies, I have found, in this, in this uh, journey is that uh, it, it's all about the internal experience and what's happening there. And that takes time. So now that we know about this challenge of me first, what is the solution? Well, in unity, we affirm that all people are inherently of equal value. Nobody is any more or any less valuable than any other. And this idea is related to the unity concept of oneness. Uh, and it's also a central message of the master teacher of our way shower, Jesus of Nazareth. Think about the parable of the lost sheep, for example. The one is worth the, the same as the 99. Well, whatever its name or source, this is all about balancing self with other. And that's what we're calling the spiritual power of consideration. So that's what we want to focus on today. But what does this look like in real life? And how do I know if I'm practicing consideration? And how do I know if I'm seeing it in others? Dan, what's your experience with this? One thing I've noticed is that if I am practicing consideration, one way that it looks is it looks like, and again, this, you know, internal, I'm not saying it looks like this from the outside necessarily, but internal, it looks like me pausing, you know, taking a few moments to think before responding. And this reminds me, we even have a, a slogan, a saying of our many, many, but I think this is a top six. In, in my home group, we had six signs that were, um, you know, eight and a half by 11, but they were framed, right? And the, and, the, and the letters were in black and there was red and white. So these were the important ones. And this one was always hung upside down. And on it, it said, <laughs> think. 
and the one that was hung upside down that said think, that's what comes to mind. If I pause for a moment just to think, and, and another word for that is to consider, to consider what's going on, to consider what my response might be instead of just acting. Um, that's one way that it, that's one way that I know that I am at least attempting to working on practicing consideration is if I pause to think. To me, consideration looks like um, I think one of my first experiences with it was it looked like kindness. You know, I walked into to my first experience of recovery and I was greeted warmly and somebody offered to get me a cup of coffee and somebody else said, come sit here. And it, I was being greeted. It wasn't that elsewhere I was not being greeted kindly, but there was a warmth around it that um, that I had not experienced. These people didn't know me from Adam. They didn't know my story. They didn't know what was going on, but there was a relationship and a connection and that the kindness that flowed from that is one of the things that I observed about this, um, how, how consideration worked. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, and I also am grateful uh, for those who were present when I showed up. Uh, in the recovery community, of course, there were those who were new, like me, and those who had been around a little while uh, that I admired and wanted to be like. I wanted to be the person who had six months, you know, when I had six days. Um, but then there are also the people who have been around for a long time, and those are the ones that come to mind as you share that. Those are the ones that um, when they ask you how you're doing, me, and, and I go on and on about it, they don't interrupt me and tell me how they're doing. They listen to what I'm saying. They show that kind of kindness. Um, another way that consideration looks is uh, if I'm, again, this is a willingness, this is partly a, a skill that's learned and partly a willingness, if I'm willing to ask myself, what, it, what might this be like for them? You know, remembering that, for example, arrogance is an expression of fear, right? So if I'm encountering a person and they're, they're reading uh, to me as being arrogant, uh, am I willing to uh, pause again and think and ask myself, what might this be like for them? You know, can I imagine the circumstances in which the way that they're acting would make perfect sense for them? You know, can I put myself in their shoes, I guess is where I'm going with this. If I'm willing to pause and uh, ask myself, what would it be like to walk in their shoes? Um, that's a way that I might be able to practice consideration. And, you know, earlier you mentioned how fear makes for all this urgency. And I, I would notice that these uh, people in whom I was uh, observing consideration, there was not an urgency about them. There was a thoughtfulness about them. There was a, a, a deliberation, you know, uh, a, a way that they would ponder about something before they would act on it. Um, me, I always had an instant answer, you know, and I'm thinking about a business meeting or a group conscience or, you know, an annual meeting or, or anything like that. I've got an opinion and I'm, I'm be happy to share it with you, you know, but it was not the way that these old timers and, and, uh, elder statesmen of the groups acted. That's not the way they behaved. And later when they spoke, I learned they had an opinion too, but they, as you just commented on, listened first and that translated to me uh, to consideration. They gave other people the chance to speak first. They listened to what there was to be said, and then they may or may not have something to contribute. I'm remembering sometime, I think this must have been sometime in the first year, maybe two years uh, of recovery, I went to an area meeting 
you know, the big meeting where there are hundreds and hundreds of people and there are agenda items on the, on the agenda and they need to be discussed and they need to be voted on. I remember this is the first time I'd had this experience. There's some issue or other, doesn't matter what it is, something. It gets discussed, people vote about it. We're almost done, almost done with it. And, but one person has one more thing to say. And they stand up to the mic and they say their thing. And, you know, what I feel like, I can only tell on myself, I'm rolling my eyes. Are you kidding me? Okay. Okay, let's move on from that. Oh, another person right behind them. They have another thing. An hour later, an hour later, we still hadn't passed this thing. And so the reason I'm sharing this is because the I, what I got out of that was that the process is so important. Every voice matters every voice not just the ones i think should matter not just the ones that seem to me to make sense not just the ones that seem to everyone around me to make sense in the context of what we're saying every voice matters that's why we have uh, the protocols that they have at meetings like that that you know after i got over being annoyed after i became willing to take a deep breath and to let go of what time are we going to get out of here uh, i was able to see the power in allowing every voice to be heard. And honestly, at the end of it all, it did, what they were saying did matter. And so that that's consideration woven into the mechanics of how the meeting was run. And, you know, my response to it was not the way that that, that needs to go. Uh, the way that the group handled it, that is that was real consideration. Well, you know, one of the things I really, really appreciate about what I learned in the program is that um, that there are spiritual principles every step of the way, and that when we run our lives, our groups, our decision making, whatever, according to spiritual principles, things go much smoothly, much more smoothly. And and the one that you reminded me of with that story is. Uh, we do principles over personalities. You know, personalities get, is getting into one person's more important than another. And because it's you, I'll do this or I won't say that, you know. But um, with when we act on principles over personalities, everybody gets a say. Everybody gets to stand up and be heard. Everybody gets to to uh, participate. And, and I think that that's critical, which is one of the reasons I just really love this format, you know, with the, what, are we, what principle are we talking about today? And so another thing that uh, that that leads me to is that uh, this high standard of concern that is shown through the process and by people that are longer in the program, you know, of uh, that everybody is heard. No, wait a minute, we haven't heard from so and so. Let's let them talk. You know that 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 uh, that that shows up. Yeah, because not just the outgoing people voices matter. Even the people, the folks who are more reluctant to speak, their voices matter. Now, of course, nobody has to speak, but by opening the door, like you're you're showing or you're saying, um, by asking, you know, is is there anyone else who would like to contribute? You know, Bob, do you have anything that you want to add? Knowing that Bob's sort of shy, well, you've opened the door, and Bob can walk through it if he wants to, or Bob can say, no, I don't have anything to share. That's fine, but the opportunity has been extended. Um, I noticed uh, what consideration looks like in others is, um, and I, and I may have alluded to this. And the reason it stands out is because it's so opposite of what I was doing uh, early on, especially in recovery. What it looks like is that person not talking about themselves all the time. 
if I say, hey, how are you doing? And they say, great. And they say, hey, how are you doing? And then I go on and on about myself for five minutes. Um, that person with a lot of recovery under their belt uh, listens to me very kindly, is not competing with me, is not trying to one-up me, is not trying to make me shut up or stop talking, but is present with me taking in whatever it is that I have to share in that moment, almost like a therapist, you know, like a professional listener. That's what consideration looks like in others. And I'm so grateful for those experiences as, as embarrassing as it is for me to have been the person I was in all that. I want to be who they were. And, you know, so often I found that, and I've commented on this before, I had to stop doing something and you know, I, I can remember the first time that I went to, it was a different 12-step group, and I was told that not to talk about everybody else. I needed to talk about me. I had gotten to the point in the other program where I was able to talk about everybody else and everything else, but my codependency pushed me to stay away from the topic of me. You know, so so there's different ways that this shows up. My self-centeredness was, I don't want it. I don't want to be the center of attention. Here, let's talk about you. You know, and and therefore I didn't connect with people, and I be, became more isolated, um, and 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 I un, unrelatable in many ways. And so, you know, I think that there's many faces to this besides just the arrogant um, person that um, nobody particularly wants to engage with. Right. Um, it helps me to remember and to ask myself, and and this is a um, you know a form of connection, I suppose, to ask. Well, what was it like for me when I was new? You know, what was it like for me when I moved from one place to another? And and maybe I wasn't new in the program, but I was new in this group, and I didn't know people, and I didn't know how they did things. Or what was it like for me when I kind of got away from spiritual principle for a time, or or when I made a mistake, or when I like I just shared, went on and on about myself or when I said something that um, now I might look back and think uh, that was not such a wise thing to say. Well, what was it like for me when I did those things? So instead of um, judging someone else, looking down on them, uh, identifying in that way and, and recognizing, okay, you know, I've been there too. I got nothing to say about this. I have been there. Now it just so happens that that's where they are. Um, can that assist me in um, doing what I was describing and listening in in a supportive and non-judgmental manner. You know, what, something that went along with that for me and, and is still applicable is learning to uh, extend respect and courtesy to everybody. You know, it doesn't matter who walks through the door. Am I going to hold the door for them? It doesn't matter who's sitting at the table. Am I going to pour coffee for them? It doesn't matter who burst into tears. Am I going to pass a Kleenex? You know, that type of thing. I mean, just that that basic, and I'm thinking a meeting hall, of course, at this point, but uh, just in life in general, can I be courteous and respectful no matter what's going on, no matter what the discussion is? Um, there, there is no reason to. So that's modifying my behavior, but the, the internal experience of that, as you described earlier, rolling your eyes and whatever, that's been a journey to get to the point where I can truly be respectful and courteous to everybody in my path. Yeah, I love that. And, 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 and it, you know, not making assumptions. Well, the person that looks more like me probably has something more valuable to say than the person who doesn't look anything like me. Uh, that's not true. So hold that thought because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'd love to hear from you. 
Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Rev. Wendy Craig Purcell, taken from a talk called The Plan Unfolds. One of the other aspects of helping to really identify a true new beginning is being willing to sit in deep questions and pay attention to your answers to those deep questions. Deep questions like, what does my soul really long to do and be? If I didn't have to worry about paying bills, what would I really want to do? I'm not suggesting that you drop the the real responsibilities of adulthood, but you can drop that from your process of questioning. What does my heart and soul long for? And what do I need to do to begin to build my life, more of my life, to look like that? To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. Get your copy of Unity Magazine this month and deepen your spiritual journey. Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber talks about the need to make a holy shift. Carolyn Mace gets gutsy with God. Justine Willis-Toms dives into new dimensions. And Alberto Violdo shares an excerpt from his new book, Heart of the Shaman. Subscribe for one year and save $5 off the cover price and get the digital edition free. Go to unitymagazine.org and get a free trial issue today. This is Biotech. The year is 2149, and the world has become a very dark place. People have augmented their bodies with technology to the point they are no longer human. Yet one brilliant and determined scientist wants to bring the human spirit back to this bleak planet and begins to develop 12 divine attributes that were born in her. Check out the Biotech comic book series from Unity Books, available at biotechcomic.com. Do you dread going to work every day and just pray for Friday? Get a fresh perspective on your career with Mo Fall and Bring Your Soul to Work every Thursday at 11 a.m. Central, 12 p.m. Eastern, here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. A leadership mentor and career coach, Mo can help you go from underpaid, unsatisfied, and unappreciated to loving your life and career again. Join the show and let Mo guide you to make some real life changes. Tune in every Thursday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. We're going to resume our discussion in just a moment, but first we want to let you know that the phone lines are open. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. 
Again, that number is 816-251-3555. So prior to the break, we were discussing what it was like when, when we had a me-first attitude and about the solution to that, the spiritual principle of consideration. So Lonnie, now that we know about that challenge, that me-first mentality and the solution of consideration, how exactly can we use consideration to come to be equal partners with others? I've commented on this before as well, and the, you know, the first step for me is the awareness that that's what, not what I'm doing. You know, I, I had it had to be pointed out, um, multiple inventories. I had to understand my my behavior and my motivation. I had to look for my motives. Oh, I'm self-serving again, um, and then I had to stop behaving that way. And as I commented earlier, behavior is only half of it. The thinking patterns behind it are the bigger half. And so, you know, I had to start looking at what am I thinking? Well, I'm in fear. I'm projecting that it's not going to go my way. So that was the first step for me. And thinking back, uh, I'm remembering that uh, a way that getting into recovery helped with all this is that I, I really had to slow down and listen. And ironically, um, you know, when I first got in recovery, my mind was not working that well. And so that made it a lot easier to slow down. My mind was slow. It made it easier to slow down. It made it easier to listen because I didn't know what was going on. I hardly knew, understood what people were talking about. Um, it just, for whatever reason, uh, made a lot of sense to me just to listen. And so consideration began almost as a, a necessity that I had to slow down and listen to what others were saying so that I could, you know, almost just so I could get oriented, uh, get, uh, get in the groove, understand again, important to me, understanding, understand what's going on. You know, consideration for me has a, it's, it's all about the other person instead of being all about me. And I had to understand the effect of some of my behaviors on the other other people in my life. And one of the things that I learned was that my brand of humor at that point in time was was hurtful. You know, I, I uh, used a lot of sarcasm and put downs and uh, that was what I had grown up with. That was an acceptable form of humor in the family system that I was in. And, um, and while I recognize that I felt hurt by some of that, it was also a defense mechanism. It was also a way to push somebody away a little farther so that they didn't get in and, and get a little deeper. And so I had to start, stop using sarcasm, catch myself thinking that, doing that, and start thinking, okay, what, what other way can I, I had to learn some other skills. How else can I address this situation besides using a put down or using sarcasm? I remember hearing early on, and, and especially at what we call a speaker meeting, I've heard it called a lead meeting, um, is to um, look to identify with, you know, look for points of commonality. Don't, don't compare uh, with the person who is sharing uh, based on how I'm not like them, but purposely look for uh, even small things, the ways that maybe I am like them. And so I found uh, that the recovery community was a great place to learn how to uh, do that, how to look to identify, how to place 
others on an equal footing, which I think is what's going on there. When I when I engage someone with a mind to uh, looking for points of commonality and to identify with the pieces of what they're saying that I can identify with, that that I, what I'm doing is is working to place them on an equal footing, rather than to compare and make different, which is to put myself first. You know, and and all, along those lines, one of the things that I realized was that this the facts of the story, the activities, the actions, um, the circumstances, those things were rarely what I identified with. What I identified with were the feelings. When I would hear somebody telling their story and they'd get to the part where the pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization sets in, I go, oh, I've been there. And then seeing uh, and listening to their story, what did you do to get out of that? You know, how did you recover from that? And so I, I use these people that you're talking about as models. You know, they were modeling for me how to be considerate of others, how to connect with others, how to not push others um, away, um, you know, which which made and I felt connected to them as well because, oh, we both I've been there. You've been there, you know, and I think that's that unspoken bond that we often feel with people in, the, in our recovery groups. Yeah, the shipwreck survivors thing. We, we've all yes. been to a place that we can just look at each other and smile and nod and know that we've been there. I'm reminded of the pink cloud phenomenon. So I heard a lot about the pink cloud uh, when I first got into recovery, and I understood that to mean, in my experience of it, it's it's almost as if it's almost as if the universe is lending me sobriety so that I can know what that feels like so that I know where I'm going uh, once that pink cloud fades away and the reality of the task at hand uh, becomes more clear. I, I have had that experience to know what this can be like, what life can be like. And I, I found that that um, allowed me to see what it's like to be more considerate of others, to, to see what it feels like to um, you know, live a life that feels somewhat joyful to where I'm not so much fear-driven, so therefore I'm not trying to put myself ahead of or differentiate myself from others, but I'm more um, inclined to and able to live in community and, and allow everyone to be equals and allow that to be okay. I feel like that pink cloud phenomenon was sort of a little bit of that that was on loan uh, to me enough to help me see where I was going and to see how wonderful it can be. You know, one of the things that I had no intention necessarily of becoming a part of, but that was service. You know, I, I was encouraged to get into service um, to others. Just at that time, emptying ashtrays, I didn't smoke. Why would I do that? You know, and, uh, making coffee and, and things of that nature for the group because I was so into me, you know, why would I want, why do I want to do that? You know, but I learned by participating in service that I was being considerate of others when I cleaned up the hall afterwards, when I made sure that, that the floor was vacuumed, when I made sure the coffee was on, when I made sure that the hall was open, when I made sure that, that I was there to step in if, if need be, you know, if somebody needed something and needed a first step meeting or what have you, you know, by, by becoming a member of and not being too good, if you will, to, to do any of those activities, either on a volunteer basis or when asked, either one, really showed me about how to be considerate of people in uh, any circumstance that I would find them in. 
I learned some things about uh, consideration, about learning to become equal partners by by watching others who had gone before me and watch how they regarded people with consideration. You know, before I even probably had an awareness of the concept, let alone words to put around it, uh, it slowly began to become clear that um, when I watched one person interact with another person, I could observe in that um, the dynamic, and sometimes the dynamic was of consideration. And the way that that showed up for me is almost like, um, you know, so my, I'm listening and my judgment comes forward. Like, oh man, that person's saying that same thing again, or, or, uh, you know, any, any sort of negative uh, comparing, pushing away of another person, but then watch the one that they're talking to not do any of that and just listen to what the person's saying. Uh, this showed up particularly, you know, after some time, get to know a, a few people a little better. I learned there were a couple, at least a couple therapists in my group. They were really, really good at it. And so I would watch them and say, I want to, I want to be able to walk through the world like that. You know, what are they doing? How can they do that? How does that work? But what I was seeing was the consideration that they just very naturally gave to other people. You know, I experienced some of that. Um, you know, life happens. And if we're not in this circumstance now, we may be later. And at, at one point, I I thought a lot about, oh, I don't want to do that because this could happen. You know, which was really still self-serving if you think about it. Um, you know, I'm still in it all, all about me. But, you know, there was a point in time where I was so... Um, low, I'll put it that way. It was after the death of my mom. And it was like a couple months later, two or three months later, that there was a Super Bowl uh, party. I was still invited to the Super Bowl party. I was not very coherent. I was not very verbal. I was not very engaged. I didn't connect. I was really kind of a zombie. I was on some pretty heavy medication at the time as well. And this was after I was clean. And but the the people that somebody picked me up, somebody said, "Don't worry about bringing anything. We'll we've got enough food for everybody." You know, so hey, why don't you sit here on the couch by me? I'd ask, "Well, what teams are playing?" And to this day, I don't know what teams were playing, <laughs> and and I didn't care. But it was the consideration that was shown for me at that point, uh, with a big loss in my life, showed me how to be there for somebody else. They didn't try to fix me. They didn't say, oh, it's going to be okay, or, well, it's been three months. Why aren't you snapping out of that uh, now or any of that? You know, it, they were just they just let me hang out and just be where I needed to be. Yeah, not saying, don't worry, you'll be fine, and other sort of self-comforting phrases like that that uh, I know that I've used. I know one thing that helped me um, shift from me first to equal partners is, is time, quite simply time. You know, we have a saying among many in the program, time takes time. And I'm remembering that saying that time heals all wounds, that kind of thing. Don't quit before the miracle is talking about time. Just flat out, the, the more I was willing to be a part of um, the recovery group, the, more, the longer I was willing to be a person in recovery, uh, just seemingly out of that um, somehow. Uh, I found it easier to uh, set myself aside, you know, set that part of me that wants to say me first, to not let that be the only voice, um, and to, through the other things we've been talking about, watching other people, um, to practice um, being more considerate in general. So just straight up 
time the time that I spent, the longer I was there, the seemingly easier it got out of out of nowhere. You know, for me, another step along the way was to learn to ask. When I was with another person, I might diagnose that they that they needed to do this or this or that, and I would give them my advice. Well, that didn't work very well. And so then I learned to do what I thought was listening at that point. And, and what that looked like was I would be uh, processing internally everything they said about, well, what am I going to say about that? You know, and, and how can I how can I turn that around to convince them of this or that, which is still a way of me being in control and it's still all about me. But I was taught somewhere along the way to ask the other person what they needed or wanted from me. And I, I was told that basically things fall into three buckets. And the first one was, do you just need to talk? Do you just want somebody to listen? And and that was very helpful because most people don't get that kind of a question. And, and it makes them stop and think, oh, yeah, I guess I just I'm processing out loud. OK, great. You know, um, another way, bucket that this falls into is reflection or, um, you know, feedback. So what I hear you saying is and restating what they are uh, trying to comment on in a way that it validates where they are. And it keeps me from misunderstanding the way they're feeling and, and keeps me from jumping to judgments about, oh, you're angry. Oh, no, they're not angry. They're hurt. You know, uh, if I if I go down that direction. And then the, the third point, which I hardly ever get to anymore, is advice. You know, because in the program, we talk about what worked for us, experience, strength, and hope. I don't give advice. For me, advice is an opinion. And for me, what works better is to say, this is what happened when I ran into that. This is what I did, and this is what worked for me. I think uh, something that was helpful for me, I would just have to call practice. You know, sometimes we talk about making a game out of things, like make a game out of looking for the good in every situation. Again, not, not claiming that the whatever's going on is good. I'm not making a broad judgment. I'm just, I'm just saying, I wonder if I can find any good in this somewhere, whatever it might be. And so practice in that way, almost like making a game, practice listening to others just to do it. You know, even if I still want to talk, which is kind of what I was part of what I, I was hearing you share just now, there, there's a time when maybe I can keep my mouth shut, but my mind is still figuring out everything that I would say if I didn't know how to keep my mouth shut. Hey, that's progress. I'm not going to complain about that. But just practice listening to others, just like, you know, make a game out of looking for the good. I'm going to listen to what this person says, and I'm not going to say, hey, yeah, I did that too, or any of that kind of stuff at all. And I'm just going to see what that's like. I'm just going to practice practice. That reminds me of something that I did that was very helpful for me over the long run. And I started carrying a, a little spiral notebook, you know, one of those uh, three by two notebooks. And I was determined that I was going to find something good in each person's share. And I was going to write down that one point. It might be on the third step, for example, but somebody would say something that seemed profound to me. And, and it by focusing to go, well, what's the nugget here? And being able to write that down, sometimes I couldn't find anything, but I'd get two or three things out of the meeting that were really later were really profound for me. When I ended up um, uh, bedridden for a while with uh, cancer recovery and all of that kind of thing, those notebooks, I could I could go back to the, a page in the notebook and I could relive that meeting in my mind. I go, oh, yeah, and I could ponder those ideas that somebody had had. Um, put forth in that meeting, different people. And, uh, and that was extremely helpful for me, but that was kind of a game because at that point I was kind of bored with being in meetings. I thought, well, I'm going to find something in here. I'm not going to go and not get anything out of it. 
You know, what comes to mind now is kind of ironic. So I even wrote in my little note, ironically, um, learning to focus on myself, not on myself as what do I think, what do I want to tell them, but on myself as the source of the trouble kind of thing. You know, we might hear it said that the problem is in the mirror, right? <laughs> if you want to find the problem, the source of the trouble in your life, look in the mirror. I would hear old timers say things like that um, early on in recovery. And so ironically, learning to um, focus on myself, not in the sense of what I have to say is more important. I better get it out there. But, but what is going on with me? What, do, do I know? Oh, I do. I do. I feel anxiety. Well, what is that about? Why do I need to say what I think should happen? You know, that kind of self-examination. So not self-centeredness as much as self-exploration. Um, that helped me over time to look for motive. You know, we talk a lot about motive because that's really important. Motive and intention underlie a lot of this stuff because we, you know, we can do we can do the same actions, but they might be coming from a self-centered motive and intention, or they might be coming from a, a service-oriented um, intention, and it's a completely different thing. So learning to focus on myself with the intention of just Again, you know, looking for the problem, looking for the source of the problem, recognizing, acknowledging that, you know what, this this begins with me, whatever's going on. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking that uh, compassion for me really at this point comes down to love. You know, it's 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 codependency if I'm acting out of um, if I'm acting out of fear. And if I'm acting out of love, it's more service-oriented and more love-based. And that um, understanding that concept for me has allowed me to open up to a lot more opportunities and a lot more situations where I would have walked away or been fearful in times past. And you know, understanding that that this compassion, and I see it in people's faces in the meetings where there's a bunch of scared newcomers and and the person leading the meeting that's been around a while is looking at them and looking deep in their eyes and listening carefully to every word they say, you know, that's love shining through, being supportive and nurturing and uh, helpful and valuing this other person for themselves, um, you know. And, and so I, I think about those types of things when I see them and I watch for them. I watch for them. Where is that showing up? And how can I do that? How can I be like that? One really simple way, and, and sometimes it's, uh, for me, it's in the things that are just so obvious that I miss them almost because they're so obvious. One way that I uh, help to move from me first to equal partners is quite simply by working the program. You know, we say it, it works if you work it. Uh, we have in front of us in the recovery program uh, these 12 steps. And uh, I heard a lot the advice that says, you know, Work the steps with a sponsor, you know, in addition to join, join a home group, get a sponsor and work the steps. That's what I heard um, early on. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. That uh, has helped me with everything. You know, I, I could, I could put uh, any, any improvement in my, the way I show up in the world in my life experience in my ability to uh, serve others, any of that all. Uh, starts with just working the program. It seems so simple, but uh, just follow the steps as they're laid out with the sponsor, you know, as as was advised. And it really does. It works when I work it. And there's so many tools wrapped up in these steps. You know, we talk about the slogans and we talk about the principles and we talk about the other other tools. You know, one of the most helpful ones to me to understand when I was not 
in this place of of being com- in compassion uh, came out of the tenth step with what they call the spot check inventory, and it says any time we're tangled up in the ups and downs of of our day, stop, pause, breathe, you know, reflect, and 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 the urgency you spoke of earlier that pushes that, you know, that's it's really uncomfortable to be to be with ourselves for a while during that process. But that was so helpful to me to recognize, first of all, how often I was in that place of feeling discomfort. And secondly, what type of reactions I was I was uh, having, you know, to the, to the outside world, what my behavior was, what my thought pattern was, that kind of thing. Because this awareness that we talk about, you know, um, it really did, really did uh, kick the ball off the cliff, if you will. It really started it off for me. And it, part of that was for me learning that do no harm is a big part of of consideration of others. Um, you know, and, and I talked about sarcasm earlier. There's all kinds of other ways that I can be harmful uh, to to other people and things that I say or attitudes or not recognizing them or saying hello or you know snubbing them or whatever. There's all kinds of behaviors that can be discourteous to others. And so learning what it is that uh, creates harm for others which I learned through my eighth and ninth steps, you know, was just immensely helpful. So I could stop and alter that behavior. You know, kind of related to uh, what I was sharing a minute ago was I learned uh, from others, as always, to ask myself the question, uh, what is my part in this? Even things like, you know, I had been married and divorced previously, which was a very painful experience. But to ask myself, you know, well, what what is my part? What was my part in all of that? Well, that didn't make any sense when I was early in recovery and thinking back to that painful time, you know, feeling like I'm the one who was wronged. What do you mean, what's my part in it? Well, she did this and she was like that and la, 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 la. Uh, but to learn to be able to step back and say, well, what is my part in it? That's another, that's a specific way. That's another way of saying, you know, look in the mirror. Do I have a resentment toward the person I, I used to be married to? Well, uh, today I can say no, that I don't. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, but there was a time when I did, well, what is my part in that? She's not doing that. Believe me, she's not, I'm doing that. What is my part in it? That, you know, I need, I need, I need steps like that. Not just the idea, but what do you mean look in the mirror? How do I look in the mirror? Well, one way I look in the mirror is ask what's my part in it. I was given a tool early on about to, to identify specifically that. I was given permission and instructed to write out the story. He said this, I did this, she said that, they went there, blah, 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 and then cross out everything that did not say I. <laughs> And that, and then read it. And that's my part. I did this. I went here. I said that. I reacted this way. Oh, that was a real eye-opener for me to understand this is how I show up when I'm hurt, when I'm angry, when I'm fearful. I love that because that, that is a wonderful, practical, simple tool. You know, even if I don't have a sponsor that's literally telling me to do that, I could see that I could just do it myself if I needed to. I love that. Tell the story because we always want to tell the story. We want to be heard. Uh, you know, I might want to tell the story to blame my ex-wife, but I could write down what happened exactly like you said and find my part in it. So let us now move into action. Unity's fifth principle states it's not enough to know these truths. We must live them. That, must, that means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. So here's something you can do to move from a habit of placing ourselves above others to a true state of equality using the power of consideration. 
Think of a way that you might be placing yourself ahead of others today. Is there a way that this is happening in your family or maybe in friendships? Do you always push to be first at work or maybe in some other aspect of your life? What's important is to pick one thing, preferably something simple, to focus on in this exercise. The idea is to relax and to let it be easy. And you can take what you learn here today into your life this week and return to it any time you choose in order to find peace. So let's use the example of um, pushing to be first at work. We use a statement of power, or what we refer to in unity as a denial, to deny any power to an old habit of me first. You could say something like, missteps of yesterday do not define me today. Repeat that a few times in your head or say it aloud, but say it with conviction. Missteps of yesterday do not define me today. And follow that up immediately with a bold and positive affirmation of a new experience. So you could say, I am a child of God. I grow in change in the spirit for the better every moment. And then take a few quiet moments to relax and breathe and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. Just give thanks for your new experience in the world and move on with your day. And again, missteps of yesterday do not define me today. I'm a child of God. I grow and change in the spirit for the better every moment. Take some time this week and affirm your new experience. So we've come to the end of our time together here today, and we hope that you found something that's helpful for you on your recovery path. And we both bless you on your journey. Thank you to our listeners, and thank you so much to my co-host, Reverend Dan Beckett, for the insights that were shared in our discussion today. Listeners, if you would like, you can connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, anytime, and give us your thoughts and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.